The warning after a new record of COVID cases. House parties, don't throw, don't go, say no. How the rate of infection is splitting BC's South Asian community. A yoga instructor busted for not taking COVID seriously. You can't legislate stupid, but the good thing with the Quarantine Act is you can sure charge stupid. The massive fine this conspiracy pusher is facing. And almost president. Democracy is sometimes messy. It sometimes requires a little patience as well. Why the path to victory favors Joe Biden. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good afternoon and thanks for joining us. We have a number of late breaking developments in the U.S. election with both Joe Biden and Donald Trump addressing the nation today. And we'll have more on that in just a moment. But first, here at home, we have breaking news involving a big uptick in the COVID-19 numbers in B.C. We have a record 425 new cases. That brings our total to 16,560. Thankfully, though, no new deaths, so that number stays at 273. There are 97 people in hospital, 24 of them in ICU. 12,806 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 3,389 active cases and 7,519 people in self-isolation. Let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on this. And Keith, that is a very concerning number for sure. Not mm-hmm. only are cases up in Fraser Health, they're also up in Vancouver Coastal. But we're not seeing any new health orders or restrictions just yet. And yet is the key word there, Sophie. Dr. Bonnie Henry again today hinting uh, quite broadly that uh, regional restrictions could be coming. And when we talk about regional, I think we're really focusing on the Fraser Health Authority. Just looked at the, the numbers dropped from the Center for Disease Control website. About uh, for the last 4,000 cases, roughly 70% of them have been in Fraser Health. And most of those are in South Fraser, Surrey, Langley, Delta, and White Rock. That's been a trend for a number of weeks now. Dr. Henry again today talking about the fact that we could see regional restrictions and there is a framework in place to pull that off. Here's the doctor. We have provincial level baseline that addresses situations that are same around the province. But yes, we are also looking at uh, discussing with um, regions um, whether they need to take additional measures that are specific to uh, issues or, or situations they're seeing within their region. So when it comes to restrictions, uh, no specifics yet, but Dr. Henry, again, has several times referred to spin classes and gyms. And I think if uh, there's those types of facilities in Fraser Health, they may be getting a visit by local health officers or they may be facing some restrictions in the future. It's interesting. They keep getting called out because of what happened in Toronto, an outbreak at a spin class, more than 100 infections. At least one event in a spin class in Fraser Health, I think, uh, led to more than 30 uh, exposures. So again, uh, the notice has been served. More restrictions are coming. All right, we'll see what happens. Keith, thank you. A well-known anti-mask activist and COVID denier is now in custody. Mac Parhar was arrested by New Westminster Police for allegedly breaking his 14-day quarantine and bragging about it after returning to Canada from the U.S. Aaron MacArthur reports. It's not really quarantine, it's self-imprisonment, right? Openly bragging about it. Mackin Singh Parhar, happy to tell a sparse crowd that he was flouting the law. I go home the next day, I live my life. His behavior caught the attention of the New West police. 
Mr. Parhar was informed by CBSA members when he arrived into Canada of the Quarantine Act and he was advised that he was to remain self-isolated in his home for a period of 14 days. This isn't the first time Parhar has been punished during the pandemic, first denying COVID in the spring, continuing to offer yoga classes in his Delta studio. When health authorities shut him down, he started trolling healthcare workers at testing sites and in hospitals. I'm going to see where I should go, cardiac, where's respiratory? Just last month, the conspiracy theorist posted another video to YouTube. Take the mask off, COVID fake! Now Parhar has taken things one step further. After returning from a conference of flat earth believers on October 28th, he openly refused to follow self-isolation requirements and scoffed at police officers who wrote him tickets. Apparently, a family member of his died. All these people attach on to tragedy. Always, oh, my so-and-so died. You're evil. You're mean. You can't legislate stupid, but the good thing with the Quarantine Act is you can sure charge stupid and you can sure fine stupid. Violating the Quarantine Act comes with serious consequences. A person can face fines of up to $750,000 plus six months in jail. In this case, a judge decided that his behavior was serious enough to remain in custody. Parhar's next court appearance, November 16th, 14 days after his arrest. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. There's another public exposure in the Fraser Health region, this time at a car dealership. Anyone who visited Langley's Willowbrook Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge and Ram dealership is being urged to self-monitor for COVID-19 symptoms. The exposure dates are October 24th and October 26th from 7.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. This only applies to those who took the shuttle bus or had contact with the service department. For any more information, visit Fraser Health's website. Well, we've all come to expect the release of those daily numbers on the COVID-19 pandemic here in B.C., but it has been several months since provincial health officials have provided data on the spread of the virus among certain occupations, such as healthcare workers. Richard Zussman has more on the reticence from Dr. Bonnie Henry and the pushback from critics. They hold the healthcare system together, doctors, nurses, other healthcare workers. But right now, there's some information missing to know how healthy our frontline workers are. It's been uh, frustrating. So some provinces um, provide that data quite readily, um, others do not. British Columbia has stopped sharing data in June on the jobs of people who test positive for COVID-19. The reason? It was being misinterpreted at the federal level. That information had been presented in a way that mischaracterized. So it was presented by StatsCan as um, healthcare workers who were infected in the work environment. And that is not the case. The province says the spread within healthcare workers has gone down since the spring. So far, we have not had to uh, cancel the, the scheduled surgeries and we're managing to keep things up. Analysts believe it's a crucial barometer to understand how healthcare workers are doing inside hospitals in terms of rates of COVID-19. And the head of the province's nurses union says there are other factors involved with how nurses are feeling. The stress that the public is feeling is only that much more for the nurses who are going to work every day in a healthcare system that has been struggling in a nursing shortage for a very long time. Information sharing also varies wildly between jurisdictions. For example, case counts are provided by neighborhood in Toronto. And that's important information. And that's information that just really is not being provided 
in BC. All leading to the question, if our medical system is under stress, will it be too late when the public finds out? Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Two days later and a winner still has not been declared in the race for the White House. All eyes, of course, are on the few remaining swing states where absentee and mail-in ballots are still being counted. Ted Field has the latest. It is a day of dealing with piles of paper. In uncalled state election officials continue to count thousands of ballots. With a lead in the Electoral College vote that Joe Biden camp was pushing to make sure that count continued. In America, the vote is sacred. Each ballot must be counted. And that's what we're going to see going through now. But President Trump says he should be the winner. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. The president's team has filed multiple legal challenges and sent out his son and personal attorney to Pennsylvania. We are going to continue the lawsuit here. We're going to bring a second one. And then we're going to bring a federal lawsuit. Protests continued outside vote counting centers in various states. I just want to see a fair election. You know, I want uh, every legal vote to be counted. President's alluded to maybe throwing out mail-in ballots or absentee ballots. And I'm here today to just make it clear that I don't think that should happen. Meanwhile, state election officials are calling for patience. Of course, we're going to count all the votes. We are legally obligated to do that. But even after the votes are counted, it will all be heading to court. I have a feeling judges are going to have to rule, but there's been a lot of shenanigans and we can't uh, stand for that in our country. Thank you very much. Ted Field, Global News. Okay, let's go live now to Washington, D.C., where Global's Reggie Cicchini is standing by with the very latest on that last-minute drama at the polls, Reggie. Chris, good evening, and the numbers continue to come in. We just had a dump of results that came in from Arizona uh, in the Maricopa County, and it has once again shaved down the lead that Joe Biden has had for the last day or so, dropping by another 11,000 votes uh, as this area that is typically a Democratic stronghold appears to be going further towards Donald Trump. Now, Joe Biden still does lead by more than 40,000, and another dump of these ballots is going to come out tomorrow morning. So we'll have to see how this bodes for the Joe Biden campaign and team uh, in the next couple of hours. Uh, Georgia is another close race, but Pennsylvania is one of the biggest races to look at right now. It has the most uh, uh, electoral college votes, and the lead for Donald Trump continues to shrink. It was over 200,000 24 hours ago. It is well under 80,000 now with the number Number of ballots that continue to be counted. There are roughly 85,000 ballots in and around the Philadelphia area that still need to be counted as well, uh, with about half a million still not in the full count yet. There is, uh, according to the Biden campaign, some comfortable optimism here that they could wind up taking a lead over Donald Trump by 200,000. Nevada is going to be a state to watch as well. They are set to release 51,000 results tomorrow of 190,000 that have not been counted yet. The biggest of them coming from Las Vegas in Clark County. It is a Democratic stronghold. Joe Biden does have an opportunity here to pick up six electoral college votes, which would put him closer to the presidency. It really all depends now on what's going to happen in Arizona as these numbers continue to come in. We'll keep an eye on it. We know you will too. Reggie, thanks very much. 
Well, the National Guard remains on standby in Portland, Oregon tonight, where at least 10 people were arrested last night when protests turned into riots. That's where we find our Sarah McDonald. Uh, Sarah, what's the situation tonight so far? Yeah, well, Sophie, as we all wait for the outcome of this election, things are really picking up here in Portland and other major American cities. As you mentioned, an almost unprecedented sight last night, the National Guard rolling through the downtown core and residential streets here as a riot was declared, something we could see again tonight. Take a look. The streets of Portland turned violent last night. Three levels of law enforcement from city police to state troopers to heavily armed federal officers responding to a demonstration that turned into a riot with windows smashed and businesses and buildings then. Now, that was largely to be expected regardless of the outcome of the election here in Portland. This city has a strong protest culture, whether politically motivated or not. But in other cities across the country, disturbing scenes are surfacing. In Detroit, Michigan and Phoenix, Arizona, for example, Trump supporters stormed vote counting centers today, casting doubt on a major pillar of the democratic process and demanding to oversee the vote count. Meanwhile, it's everyday Americans caught in the middle of all this left picking up the pieces of destructive protests and dangerous conspiracy theories still being peddled by President Donald Trump. Oh, it's tragic. Um, it's the death of small business in downtown. I mean, even the fact that uh, we're having to put boards up in the first place is another nail in the coffin. I hate to see all these boards on these windows and things too, man. Take the boards down. Let's get back to the get back. We're already dealing with one thing, this COVID thing, so we don't need to be dealing with that too. That's a sentiment we're hearing a lot here on the ground, at least in Oregon. A lot of people struggling to keep their heads above water with the pandemic. This sort of unrest and destruction is the last thing they need to see right now. Though we should note the unrest that was expected in the days leading up to the election hasn't materialized to this point. Part of the point, part of the reason I should say that may be here is because the National Guard remains on standby. We are still under a state of emergency in the state of Oregon that is expected to be extended throughout the weekend. As Sophie, we do expect to see more riots materialize over the next few days. All right. Thanks for that. Sarah McDonald in Portland. It's enough fentanyl to wipe out a city. The major bust Victoria police are celebrating and the heart-wrenching story of a family forever impacted by the opioid crisis coming up in just over a minute. Driven to succeed. How two women from the Okanagan blazed a trail across the continent. No GPS allowed. That's coming up later. And how human error contributed to a collision and crane collapse at the port of Vancouver. That's coming up on the news hour. Right now, though, Victoria police are showcasing a bust that potentially saved thousands of lives. They seized enough 90% pure fentanyl to produce nearly half a million lethal doses. Kylie Stanton reports. One bag weighing only a single kilogram. It may not look like much, but what's inside is deadly. The analysis by Health Canada confirmed it has a concentration of 90%, which is rare. Victoria Police Strike Force officers, along with the Greater Victoria Emergency Response Team, seized the fentanyl on October 21st in the zero block of Dallas Road, the culmination of a multi-month investigation into a drug trafficking supply chain. While the toxic drug supply has been killing more than four people a day in B.C., samples typically contain about 10% fentanyl. The sheer potency of this batch is being called extremely troubling. In 2019, um, across Canada, there was only one sample um, seized by police and tested 
that had a purity um, between 75 and 100 percent. Um, in 2020, we are now up to seven samples um, with that ex extreme uh, fentanyl concentration. In the midst of the overdose crisis, the fentanyl would have undoubtedly added to the death toll. At 90% concentration, there's enough in this bag for an estimated 495,000 lethal doses. It's that high, high concentration. It is so rapid, you are not going to be able to call for help once the effects are starting, starting to be felt. So this is, again, aggravating an already bad public health crisis. In Victoria, the toxic drug alert has been extended for a second week. Officials know this seizure is only the tip of the iceberg. That's the sad reality, uh, is that this is a significant significant outcome. Uh, I mean, this will uh, will have a dent uh, in the in the street supply. Uh, however, uh, for you know every dealer and every organized crime group uh, that gets caught, uh, there's another one that is waiting. Currently, no one is in custody, but drug trafficking related charges will be recommended against five individuals, one in Victoria and four others in Metro Vancouver. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. And that seizure in Victoria is just a fraction of what's already on the street causing the overdose crisis that's left thousands of families reeling, including one in Langley. Last month, Olivia Dalton was found dead by her father in her own apartment after taking heroin laced with fentanyl. Ted Chernecki has more on her family's heartbreaking loss. I just wish I could have my daughter back. A father grieves in front of a montage of photos. A beautiful child and daughter, dead at 21. She was sweet. She was kind. She loved animals and she loved people. This is the heartbreak that's played out 1,202 times this year, as of September. Olivia Dalton isn't even one of them, as she will die from fentanyl poisoning on October 22nd. I walked up to her and I made another noise. And I could see that she was unresponsive. And I touched her and and then I knew, I knew she was gone. My world has never been the same. This occurs in the suburbs, like most overdoses. $100,000 later, the parents get Olivia clean for more than a year. Then, in the middle of the pandemic, she relapses. We fought and... She struck me. She two-handed me with a, a large frying pan in the back of the head, and all it almost knocked me out. And all I can remember is just looking up and looking into her eyes. And we just stood up and we just hugged and we cried because she knew that she was, it was not her. She knew at that moment. I said, we got to get help you, honey. This, this isn't you. And, and we agreed and we had a good talk. But as almost every parent who goes through this finds out, that help is not there. By now, they understand long-term comprehensive treatment is what's needed. Safe injection sites and a clean drug supply are Band-Aid solutions. But if it means saving their daughter, they'll take it, even if the relief is only temporary. No parent deserves to have to see their daughter go this way, and I'll miss her forever. BC is on pace to set another all-time high in overdose deaths in 2020. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Up ahead, more startling testimony from the Cullen Inquiry. I felt that it was uh, a charade. What frustrated this gaming enforcement officer most as he tried to investigate the dirty money flowing through BC casinos? And the clash within a culture, how COVID is tearing apart BC's South Asian community. 
Final clearing stages of crash here in Burnaby westbound on Highway 1 near Willingdon. Traffic is blocked in the far right lane and backed up past Sprott on the approach. Kermat Collision and Autoblast have been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash on Highway 1 in Burnaby. The increasing numbers of COVID-19 cases in the Fraser Health region are causing some painful divisions within the South Asian community. Those who refuse to limit numbers of guests for weddings and claim it's part of their culture are at odds with others who say it's time to fall in line with health officials' orders. And that has some brides caught in the middle. Swrishti Gangdev reports. In normal times, South Asian weddings are a grand affair, like this one from 2019. But times have changed in a COVID world. 110%. Um, I am not for uh, big parties, especially right now. Recently engaged herself, Gunjan Vaswani is frustrated to see others live out their dream weddings in spite of a global pandemic. I do believe that everyone's number one priority should be everyone's safety. Large weddings and other celebrations have been at the target of provincial health warnings, social gatherings or super spreader events named as a key source of COVID-19 transmission concentrated in the Fraser Health region. We need to keep our group small and I know that goes against many of our cultural norms and it's not how we would normally spend some of these important celebrations together. With that guidance and provincial health orders, brides and grooms have a choice to make, a conflict placing culture at odds with compliance. The South Asian community is, it's a collectivist culture. It's a culture that is very, uh, it's very much about family, about community, about relationships, and, uh, and celebrating those important times with each other. The bigger the better. Often South Asian weddings can last many days to include religious ceremonies. Guest lists can be in the hundreds and include musicians, dancers, even acrobats. It's, it's hard for me to kind of judge other people on it, but I feel like the, the way our society is, we do splurge on things. When public health officials shut down banquet halls in B.C. in an effort to contain these celebrations, the parties just defaulted to private homes and backyards instead. The clients would say, why would we want to do an event at your banquet hall when we can't dance and we can't do what we want to do? At home, I'm only allowed to have 50 people, but I can dance with my friends, I can go to the bar, get drinks by myself, I can cater to whoever I want. Those in the wedding industry believe most aren't knowingly breaking the rules, but hope for their safety, the community can be more conscious about the consequences. Having the mentality like, okay, maybe it's okay. It's, it's not going to affect somebody else, right? Baswani isn't letting the change of plans dampen her enthusiasm to marry the man of her dreams. It's been wonderful. Um, in a year that's been a little disappointing. The start of this marriage is already all about compromise. I will um, keep everybody's safety in mind, and I personally will uh, let go of those traditions. Sershi Gangdev, Global News. We are getting our first look at COVID safety protocols for this year's Stanley Park Bright Nights Christmas train. Much to the relief of its tens of thousands of fans, it will be running this year. Of course, it's going to be a little different. Each car of the train will be separated by that plexiglass, and the train will be the only attraction running. None of the other sites, including the Plaza Lights or Pictures with Santa, will be operating. Total attendance will be limited to 25% of normal. Tickets can only be purchased online, and entering, exiting, and boarding the train will be strictly controlled. 
Straight ahead, the investigation into casino money laundering leads to the halls of the legislature. I asked her to go and speak with the uh, cabinet minister responsible for gaming. What this former enforcement officer says the government didn't want to hear. And an unusual benefit for children during the COVID pandemic. Separate problems causing delays in both directions on Lougheed Highway. This is a crash eastbound just past Pitt River Road in the left lane. And heading west, there's another crash near Colony Farm. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Auto Glass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Lougheed Highway in Coquitlam. The Transportation Safety Board report finds a 2019 incident involving a cargo ship that hit a crane raises concerns about the capacity of the Port of Vancouver. Back on January 28, 2019, the container vessel Ever Summit crashed into its berth, hitting a massive shore gantry crane. The vessel, berth and crane were all damaged, but luckily there were no injuries or environmental impact. The investigation found the pilot aboard Ever Summit wasn't able to see the two tugboats maneuvering the ship to the berth and mixed up the commands to them, causing the crash. The TSB says there is no set limit on maximum vessel size entering the harbor, and the board is concerned some ships may be too big for port facilities to safely handle. A transit police officer has been sent to hospital in serious condition after a crash in Surrey last night. It happened just before midnight near 128th and 93rd Avenue. Transit police say the officer was hurt while en route to assist with an arrest of a suspect. The suspect was wanted for a Canada-wide warrant and was allegedly resisting arrest. The unmarked transit police vehicle and a sedan were damaged, as was a nearby property. The woman in the sedan suffered minor injuries. He was actually able to escape from police custody twice and eventually evade police. Now, when the officers returned to where that man's belongings were, they actually located a loaded 40 caliber Smith & Wesson handgun in, a, in his bag, as well as a pellet gun. 33-year-old Sean Trevor Cudford is still at large. He is of no fixed address and is well known to police. Transit police expect to recommend several charges, including escaping lawful custody and multiple firearms charges. Some more explosive testimony at the commission looking into money laundering in B.C. today and what the ruling government knew about it at the time. The former head of the illegal gaming task force said after his frustrating tenure pushed him to leave law enforcement, he claims he tried to meet with the minister in charge. John Hua reports. On paper, the focus of B.C.'s first illegal gaming task force included crime connected to licensed casinos. I felt that it was... Uh, a charade. But Fred Pinnock, the former commander of the Integrated Illegal Gaming Enforcement Team, or IGET, told the Cullen Commission at the time he believed casinos were off limits. Public safety was uh, not a priority of my uh, uh, superiors with respect to gaming, in my opinion. Pinnock, who previously spoke exclusively with Global News, was asked several times by Commission counsel whether he simply misunderstood IGET's clearly stated mandate. Seen it written at uh, this morning uh, on, on documents, but uh, in practice, uh, we were not. Pinnock said a rocky partnership with the gaming policy and enforcement branch and perceived lack of mandate to tackle crime in BC casinos 
led him to leave IGET after three years. I was uh, so frustrated uh, that uh, and exasperated with uh, my um, journey with uh, this unit that I went on medical leave in December of 2007. But when IGET was disbanded in 2009, Pinnock went to the media, saying it should have been expanded into casinos. Then he said he asked his then-girlfriend, Liberal MLA Naomi Yamamoto, to arrange a meeting. I asked her to go and speak with the uh, cabinet minister responsible for gaming, Rich Coleman. Pinnock said the purpose to alert Coleman about crime at BC casinos. And she described his reaction as brutal and dismissive and embarrassing to her. My conclusion from that is that he did not want to be seen to be told. Pinnock also told the commission after going public, he met with then-Solicitor General Cash Heed. He said to me, in effect, that is what's going on, Fred, but I can't say that publicly. Um, you know it's all about the money. Based on Pinnock's recollection from more than a decade ago, he'd opened up even more. He did feel that uh, Rich Coleman uh, had created this, and uh, it received the... Um, sort of tacit support of senior Mounties uh, in this province. Global News reached out to both Heed and Coleman. Heed said he couldn't comment as a potential future witness. Coleman said his day at the public inquiry will come. John Hua, Global News. A Vancouver senior who fatally stabbed two of his neighbors will spend what will probably be the rest of his life behind bars. Back in July 2017, the bodies of 57-year-old Sandra McInnes and 51-year-old Neil Croker were found in their apartments at the Ocean Towers high-rise. Another resident of the building, Leonard Landrick, was arrested at the scene. Last November, the now 76-year-old was found guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. While those convictions carry a mandatory life sentence, Landrick will be eligible to apply for parole after 13 years when he will be 89 years old. In Health Matters tonight, a new study is showing a major drop in pediatric emergency visits in our province during the peak of the pandemic. Looking at 18 emergency departments in Metro Vancouver, UBC researchers saw a 70% drop in the number of pediatric visits compared to the same time last year. The study suggests many families may have avoided visiting the hospital for minor illnesses from the middle of March to the end of April. At the time, the province was under phase one of its reopening plan and many non-essential services were shut down. The study also suggests with many children's activities also cancelled, a decline in sports-related injuries may have also led to a decrease in visits. Coming up, they are not your stereotypical off-road enthusiasts. It's not a puff rally. Uh, This is the real deal. How these two BC ladies tackled a grueling challenge and still stayed friends. And learning happens naturally. How BCIT students created their very own wetland later. Metro Vancouver has a new wildlife wetland for birds, frogs and other creatures thanks to students at BCIT. And in an interesting twist, Linda Aylesworth shows us how it wouldn't have happened if not for the COVID pandemic. 
The world's wetlands are disappearing. Over the last few decades, half of them have been destroyed. And so the BC Institute of Technology developed a program devoted to their preservation. The main thing that we teach is how to restore a wetland that got degraded over time because wetlands haven't had a lot of respect over the years. They've been filled in, drained, paved over. This wetland on BCIT's south campus was overgrown with blackberries and knotweed just a few months ago. That it's being restored is thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. Normally we, we take the class that I teach on wetland restoration and we go up to Logan Lake near Kamloops and we camp out for a week. With a field trip out of the question, they turned to their own backyard, where while walking his dog, their instructor had noticed some standing water. I tell my students to look for standing water. I figured I might as well do what I say. And so I said, well, there's some standing water. And so there probably used to be a wetland there. We had to make sure people were spaced out. We had everyone wearing masks. And then we had to really focus on the tools and equipment that we were using. In other words, no sharing before everything is sanitized. Here are all the species that we had. It's more effort getting hands-on experience during a pandemic, but you just can't learn this kind of stuff online. The students, they're getting wet, they're getting dirty, they have to know how to dress, they have to know what tools they need. Uh, the plant ID, you have to be there in person, you have to see how the water moves through the system. Today, native plant species are being planted by forestry students. Soon, frogs, salamanders and birds will find their way here and settle in. And in time, there may even be a raised walkway so the public can come and enjoy. Ideally, we're going to keep expanding the wetland. Um, why not? There's a lot of water here. This was a, a great project. The students enjoyed it. It uh, couldn't have worked out better. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Wow, very cool. Well, it's been perfect weather for wetlands lately. Mm -hmm. It has, Christy, and hopefully we'll get more of it. You know, one of the ways that you can get really bright colors uh, in the fall is when you have sunshine during the day and cold, clear nights. And we've got three of those on the way. So hopefully that will brighten up the colors a little bit. I wanted to show you a few photos. Thank you to Anne for this one. Michael from this uh, from Pitt Meadows and one more for you here tonight from the Jericho Beach area. Great shots. I love looking at the colors. All right. So let's talk about what's going on. We are seeing some cloud cover across southern Vancouver Island in our region as well right now. Uh, temperatures tonight will still drop down to about three or four degrees, so much chillier than what we've seen in the last couple of nights. And despite the fact that this looks quite ominous, it is actually going to track south of our region and push down in a way. There's really only one area of our province that we're concerned about for tomorrow, and that's that southeastern corner. Mainly cloudy skies expected during the day, and you do have a chance of snow or flurries through the evening hours tomorrow. Generally, cold and clear, not only tomorrow, but Saturday and Sunday also. But it's certainly cold. In through the far north, Wind chills tonight down to minus 20. We're approaching uh, the zero degree mark in through southern BC, many areas like Whistler below. Again, this is the feels like I'm using that just because there's wind chills in through the far north, but I wanted to give you an idea of what it would be like in our region as well. So we're talking about three or four degrees. These are your daytime highs, dry conditions other than a few flurries in the morning for Fort St. John, but terrific conditions. And for our region, tomorrow will be near seasonal. So highs of 10 degrees and we'll see sunshine throughout the day, but temperatures will drop a little bit Saturday and into Sunday. So highs of only 7 and 8 degrees Saturday and Sunday. As I mentioned, though, uh, cold at night, so we could see a bit of frost through the morning hours and no rain in the forecast until late Monday at this point. I'll leave you with your central windows weather window for tonight. I love this. I love the cloud when it sort of hugs the mountain in various layers, and that's from David in Trail. Thank you. It's like a Bob Ross painting. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thanks, Thank Christy. You.
A B.C. paramedic who has already been working under stressful conditions through the pandemic has decided to do, to do even more for his community. There we go. And there you go. Thank you. Okay, you're very welcome. Will Rogers is donating his special pandemic pay, plus a bit more to the Surrey Christmas Bureau and the Surrey Food Bank. $2,000 each. And he's challenging anyone else who's received pandemic pay and can afford it to do the same. I got the pandemic pay and I, I, as soon as I saw it in my bank account, I realized, you know, had the thought that, you know, something I... I this should be passed on to others. I, it's not going to make that much of a difference in my life, but it could certainly make a difference in others. We started getting calls from families that are, are going to be looking for help at Christmas time back in August. Uh, families that have never, you know, been to a food bank or a Christmas bureau before um, that have been suffering because they've been out of work uh, for a large part of the year due to the pandemic. This holiday season is going to be very uh, stressful and very difficult for a lot of people. So we're very grateful for people like Will to come in and give us these donations so we can get help directly into the hands of people who need it. Both the Food Bank and the Christmas Bureau say they're expecting unprecedented demand for their services this year. Well, just last week we were celebrating our 60th anniversary going on the air, but there's another monumental anniversary to talk about tonight. Well, I don't know. Let's just, uh, let's try this. <laughs> 25 years ago tonight, in this town, something big happened. Any ideas? Well, here's a hint. The ticket from that big event. It was the very first Vancouver Grizzlies regular season home game. The ticket was signed by Stu Jackson, which I think gave you a discounted hot dog. And the best part about this game, they actually won. Very cool. Also tonight, those hard-driving B.C. women who just survived a desert rally with no GPS. And that was... Am I? Right. Yes, 25th anniversary. It's a how silver I, anniversary. How do I know that? It's not yours, is it? No. Okay. Because <laughs> you don't like want to forget. not a thing I would know. Don't forget. <laughs> right, I got a few. Okay, years. Squire? Yes. Well, we actually have been in kind of an anniversary mode around here, so... Why not this? 25 years ago today, it was a Sunday night, I believe, the Vancouver Grizzlies played their first ever regular season home game, and they won. In fact, they won their first two ever games, and then they lost 19 in a row. And when you think about it, it's kind of like it never happened. It's almost surreal that for six years, Vancouver was in the NBA. Michael Jordan came here. Shaquille O'Neal came here. Kobe Bryant was here. Charles Barkley, Carl Malone. They all came to test their skills against this guy. Big Country Reeves. But let's show you that first ever home game and how it ended. It's probably, even though it's only their second ever game, the high point of the Grizzlies' time in Vancouver. Super Grizz was there. Who didn't love Super Grizz? There were actually 19,193 fans that night. Antonio Harvey, I think he only scored four points, but this was the most spectacular. But here's how the game ended. The last chance. Byron Scott, no. Chris King, the tip-in. And as I said, it pretty much was all downhill from there for the Vancouver Grizzlies. Our first head coach always reminded me of Lurch from the Adams family. Uh, the NBA is close to announcing it'll have a 72-game season starting December 22nd. And finishing before the men's basketball tournament at the Summer Olympics is supposed to start on July 23rd. Now the problem with this, for Canada's men's basketball team, to play in the Olympics, we have to win a 16 qualifying tournament, which is scheduled for Victoria, 
June 29th and July 4th. But if some of Canada's best players are still in the NBA playoffs, they're not going to be able to play for us. Well, shortly after Tampa Bay won the Stanley Cup, they added a local boy from Mission to their prospect pool in the second round of the draft. Gage Gonsalves, who plays for Everett in the Western League, is living proof that if you work hard and you never give up, you too can make it. Gonsalves stole it. Gonsalves hit all along. Shoot, he scores! It's been quite a year for Mission's Gage Gonsalves. 33 goals in his second Western League season in Everett, getting drafted in the second round by the Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning, and now an invitation to Canada's World Junior Camp. But Gage's road to that success has not been easy or typical for a player with his potential. He was passed over in the Bantam draft, and when he finally did make it to the Western League in Everett, he scored one goal his entire first season, mostly watching and learning on the fourth line. I've had to work for everything that's given to me. Like A lot of those guys kind of just get spoon-fed or they've been the best since the start, so they don't really have, haven't seen that adversity yet. So yeah, it's been nice to kind of kind of show whatever the young kids in mission and stuff like that, that if you just keep working and plugging away, you, uh, you'll get your opportunity. He's pretty determined and, and he's put the extra stock in, in, in the work side of things. So, you know, that coupled with, you know, a really good shot and really good intangibles offensively, he's going to have a good shot here at, uh, at a good long pro career. Rihella coached Gage at Yale Hockey Academy in Abbotsford as a bantam, and watching his career path reminds Rihella of another local player who didn't get anything handed to him either. Brendan Gallagher, um, just a, a really competitive player that, that has finish and has ability to create offense. And I think the, the chip on the shoulder is something that's a, a real similarity between those two players. Gallagher was a fifth-round pick by the Habs. Gonsalves' stock grew so rapidly after those 33 goals, he was taken at the end of the second round by Tampa. Being able to celebrate that draft moment with his family is one he will never forget. It was really nice to have uh, my whole family, my mom, my sister, my dad, and my grandpa there. He wouldn't be able to make the trip to Montreal if we went and stuff like that, so it was pretty special to have him there for that. And now Gonsalves has his sights set on Team Canada. The World Junior Camp starts in just a couple of weeks in Red Deer. He's one of 45 vying for just 25 spots. Tough odds, but the kind Gage Gonsalves seems to thrive on. They don't think anybody had me written up to even go to the World Junior Camp, let alone get drafted into the NHL or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, they keep say, saying no, but uh, in my head, I just keep saying yes. So I'm going to go there. I'm not just going there to, to have fun, enjoy, enjoy the experience. I'm going there to, to try and make that World Junior team. All right, let's go to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and see what's up. Green Bay, San Francisco. And this is a beautiful pass and catch to Devontae Adams, who makes a lot of these in the end zone. And this is good. They looked at it, foot down, elbow down, yep, count it, 21-3 for Green Bay. Uh, last night, the Whitecaps were eliminated from the uh, MLS playoff race, but today they named their player of the year. Ali Adnan was given the award, voted on by the fans. There you go. Thank you very much, Squire. Here's Andrew with a preview of Global News at 11. We are monitoring the U.S. presidential election as the vote counting continues tonight. Plus, as we heard, another record day for COVID-19 cases in B.C. and a concern that health officials are not getting their message out to the right people. And the city of Vancouver is discussing its controversial climate emergency action plan that could see increased fees for downtown drivers. 72 people are set to speak to this motion. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris and Sophie. All right, and thanks. Up next, it was the road trip of a lifetime for two rebels from B.C.
Watch the Global News and 980 CKNW Leadership Series every Saturday and Sunday in partnership with Fortis BC Energy at Work. Two Okanagan women have just returned from what they call the off-road adventure of a lifetime. Lisa and Sue drove across the deserts of Nevada and California competing in the Rebel Rally. Travis Lowe reports. After two weeks of quarantine, Lisa Tuff and Sue Chapin are just getting back into the driver's seat, so to speak. Wanna get your seatbelt on? Well, Chapin is actually getting in the passenger seat. I'm not the driver, I am the navigator. But you get the picture. Are we ready? Ready. The two Okanagan women didn't have COVID. No, they had something far more contagious, apparently, called the Rebel Rally. Billed as America's first off-road rally for women, the Rebel Rally covers more than 2,000 kilometers of desert terrain from Nevada to California over a span of eight days. The focus is on navigation and not on racing. So it's a good thing that Sue Chapin has plenty of experience telling her husband where to go. I don't tell him how to drive, I just tell him where to drive. Because GPS isn't allowed at the Rebel Rally. It's not a puff rally. Even though it's it's for women, it's not a puff rally. Uh, this is the real deal. One of the hardest parts of the Rebel Rally for the duo was just getting across the closed border. That was definitely a challenge. Basically, I had to ship the truck and fly to Wenatchee. From there, they drove straight to Nevada and completed the race. As for how the team fared, well, statistically, they finished 29th out of 30 teams in the 4x4 class, but Tuff says that statistics don't always tell the whole story. I think we did really well. We crossed the finish line. We didn't roll the track. Travis Lowe, Global News, Peachland. Okay. Christy and I got to enter that. Next <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> okay, but are you driving, Christy, or am I driving? Um, or are we taking turns? I think I should drive because I'm not very good <laughs> with the <laughs> directions. <laughs> All She's right. fast. Too. In an electric vehicle, though. <laughs> In an electric vehicle, though. We'll bring my uh, car then. Of course. <laughs> All right. Final word on the weather, quickly. Sunshine expected for the next three days. A little chilly, so you have to bundle up, but enjoy. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night.